You think about pollution, you know, if there's an oil spill in a creek or in a river, that's going to affect the small things first, right? So macroinvertebrates are insects. And so macro means big, right? Mm -hmm. Invertebrate means without a spine. The smallest big thing that you can see with your eyes, if that makes sense. You're not like going to notice bacteria and diatoms and like, you know, algaes so much, but you might notice if all of a sudden there's no more mayflies or there's Mm -hmm. no more stoneflies. Maggie Human is Trout Unlimited's Manager of Volunteer Operations. She works with TU Chapters and organizes educational opportunities around the nation. She has always been fascinated with insects and started as an entomologist. We discuss the importance of insects as indicators of stream health and how observing hatches can help you out when fly fishing. Maggie is also a co-founder of Artemis Sportswoman. This organization is affiliated with the National Wildlife Foundation and facilitates women hunting and fishing events all around the nation. We will hear about Maggie's journey in the outdoor industry and how her passion in entomology has carried through. I'm Lanaya Turner, and you're listening to Emerging, the official podcast of Trout Unlimited, Costa's Five Rivers program, brought to you by Sims Fishing Products. Well, I just want to start us off by saying thanks so much for coming on. I always enjoy talking to Trout Unlimited employees. I am really stoked. I've been listening to a couple of the episodes recently, and I actually, um, before I even interviewed with Trout Unlimited, that was the first thing that I listened to was the Five Rivers podcast. Really? That's awesome. Chris Chris Wood, and there's just like a lot of good backstory about to you, um, and you guys are doing a great job, so it's it's great content. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, so can you kind of tell us uh, where you're located and kind of how you got started in the outdoor industry? So I am in Driggs, Idaho. Um, right now, so kind of on the Wyoming, Idaho state line. And, you know, just like everybody else, um, this wasn't like my full vision in life to end up working for TU, but it's all manifested in the most perfect way that it could because um, I am originally from Alabama and I grew up loving bugs and outdoors. I grew up on a cattle farm and we had hundreds of acres to roam and turn mm-hmm. over rocks and streams. And oh, that's fun. there was actually land that my dad bought was actually a rock quarry and they hit a spring creek when they were um, mining out the rock there and it filled the quarry up with water. And so I grew up with this pond on my property that had hundred foot rock walls all the way around it because it used to be a quarry. And my dad stocked it with catfish and brim and bass and all sorts of things. So mm-hmm. like I just grew up, you know, being able to go fish at the drop of a hat. And so, um, again, never really thought that would be my career path, so to speak, but I always loved bugs and being outside. And one thing led to another and ended up getting my master's degree in entomology and doing a lot of um, conservation work through jobs at fly shops and other things. And that's what's led me to TU. Yeah, that's super cool. So what do you do with TU? So for Child Unlimited, I am the manager of volunteer operations. So i feel like I'm one of the cat herders in chief, maybe. <laughs> yeah. we, we help um, manage all the chapters and councils and the National Leadership Council as far as, you know, support for events and just anything that the chapters need as far as insurance or online help or 
you know, holding meetings and seminars, we, we help facilitate all that sort of stuff. So it's a, it's a really fun job because it's not, it's not monotonous at all. It changes every single day and there's always something new to do. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. And then how did you get started fly fishing? So, um, obviously growing up in Alabama, fly fishing is not like the top fishing the top way that people fish Mm -hmm. um so I definitely grew up in more of a conventional um spin fishing type family but my dad had worked in Wyoming when he was in college and really taken up fly fishing and gotten into it and and fly fish quite a bit actually in Alabama when he was young um and so when I was about eight he told me that if I liked bugs as much as I did that I needed to not spin fish and then I needed to learn how to fly fish and match the hatch and all that sort of stuff. So we drove from Alabama to Wyoming one year on a family vacation and we stopped at the original Cabela's in Nebraska on the way and he bought me like a seven and a half foot kid fly rod and mm-hmm. I fished with that until I was like 20. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yep. That's awesome. What's your favorite kind of fish to catch? So I feel very, very lucky and spoiled, but I I have Yellowstone cutthroat right out my back door. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. And I live just right out, you know, in part of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, just right outside of Grand Teton National Park and Yellowstone National Park. And so I really, really enjoy catching cutthroats. I love watching them rise to the surface. I love the way they fight. I love the way they look. They're just the funnest fish in the world to me, and I'm, I'm very lucky to have them, you know, a mile away. Yeah, that's really cool. I would love to go fly fishing out there sometime invitations open come on i got yeah. i got plenty of couches <laughs> awesome so what got you into bugs and entomology kind of what is entomology so entomology is the study of insects um a lot of people get it confused with etymology the study of language which is always a funny one. Oh yeah um <laughs> when they think i'm a, a linguist <laughs> <laughs> yeah very different <laughs> very very different paths um but again just just growing up outside i always loved bugs and um you know, one thing we talk about in TU a lot is like affinity groups and cultivating, you know, young kids in their outdoor pursuits and in fishing and everything else. And I just, I can't thank the people around me enough from when I was a little kid. I had a, um, there was a teacher that went to my church. He was an FFA sponsor and he was the ag teacher um, mm-hmm. and the wood shop teacher at our high school. And he, knew that I liked bugs and he started engaging with me at a very young age about it. And I started helping out the FFA, which, which if you don't know, is future farmers of America. When their water monitoring team would go out, I would go out with their team as a kid and they called me the junior caddisfly and I would just help them collect insects for their water monitoring projects. And so I just really got bought into it. And there was a, a teacher at my high school that required a bug collection and, you know, through elementary school and middle school kids or high school kids would, would ask me to help them catch bugs for their collection for this guy's class. So, you know, it was just something that was cultivated through my childhood. And um, by the time I went to college, I really wanted to major in entomology and I was super bummed out to find out that it wasn't a major at a lot of universities. Mm-hmm. Um you can major in like biological sciences or ecology or, you know, you can do a focus in insects, but as far as like a degree in entomology, not many universities actually even offer that anymore. So um, I'd originally intended on going to Clemson 
and majoring in a biological sciences field and focusing in entomology, but ended up getting a scholarship to go to Auburn University, which is in my home state of Alabama, for poultry science, which is an odd uh, twist. But yeah, my, a little my bit. Dad, <laughs> my, my dad and my grandfather were both in the chicken business, so to speak. And so um, there was an opportunity there. And they allowed me to minor in entomology if I majored in poultry. And so I kind of became the chicken and bug girl, and which has been funny later in life, too, at fly shop jobs and whatnot. I always get grief about being the, you know, expert in bugs and hackle. So I'm supposed yeah. to know all the details about the flies and the bugs. Yeah, there you go. That's funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I ended up going to college for poultry, but had an opportunity to minor in entomology and took as many classes as I possibly could and ended up, I think, with more hours in entomology than I did <laughs> in poultry. Mm-hmm. And then um, that led me to grad school. And so after I graduated from Auburn, um, I had worked a couple summers in Grand Teton National Park at a ranch. And oh, cool. so I, um, I was already enamored with the West and wanted to head West. And so I headed to grad school at Colorado State University. And um, kind of the same thing with the semantics of the degrees there. My degree at Colorado State would have been in um, bioagricultural sciences and pest management. And I never really, pest management just never had the best ring behind your degree. Sure, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But I ended up not finishing up there because as things happen, I met my husband and he was living in Jackson Hole at the time. And so ended up not finishing my degree at Colorado State and moving to Jackson, getting married. And a couple years later, transferred all my credits to the University of Nebraska, who actually has an MS master's in entomology program and they took all my class credits and they allowed me to do my own um, kind of thesis project out here and so it just made so much more sense that it was focused on more of what my passions were and as I became more of an angler through all these years you know it became more apparent to me that I wanted to focus in aquatic entomology and things that affected trout and fish as opposed to you know, butterflies and some other things that I had been working on um, through other professors and through other things through grad school. And so they let me finish and I did a master's project on the aquatic insects of the Teton River drainage, which if you're not familiar with the Teton River, it's one of the last three major strongholds of Yellowstone cutthroat trout that are genetically pure. And it is a tributary to um, what ends up being the Snake River so it's a it's a really cool, really important drainage in our area, and there had never really been a full inventory of the insects done on it. So that's what I kind of put together for that. But it's done nothing but continue to pique my interest, and especially now working for TU and working with volunteers who are very interested in macroinvertebrates and and bugs, and they want to know, you know, what can we do as citizens to help, you know, monitor these types of things because. I had this like false pretense my entire life that like the park service hired entomologists and had them on staff in all the parks and like the forest service had entomologists and like there's really not that many people that do those things for the government entities. And so that's one direction that I really am hoping to go with Trout Unlimited and that we're already going with a lot of different projects. And we've got tons of staff all over the country that are doing these types of things, but just macroinvertebrate monitoring of rivers and streams and lakes because um, they're the smallest organisms that can show reaction to really big change on a very subtle level. Um, You think about pollution 
you know, if there's an oil spill in a creek or in a river, that's going to affect the small things first, right? And right, so yeah. macroinvertebrates are insects. And so macro means big, right? And mm-hmm. vertebrate means without a spine. So they're the biggest thing without a spine. So they're kind of the smallest big thing that you can see with your eyes, if that makes sense. Sure, You're not yeah. like going to notice bacteria and diatoms and like, you know, algaes so much, but you might notice if all of a sudden there's no more mayflies or there's mm-hmm. no more stoneflies. So they're just incredible indicators of water quality. And that's something that I, I really enjoyed hearing from TU volunteers is their interest in that and their interest in kind of furthering these projects. I actually have a phone call later today with a, a new group called the Stonefly Project out of Missoula, Montana, who is monitoring stonefly hatches and macroinvertebrates across the West. And they're trying to get more projects like this going. So we're hoping that TU and some chapters can partner up and really start to make a difference and collect good data that we can present to these government entities and, you know, they could do something about it. Yeah, that sounds really interesting and also very important to stream health, like what you've been saying. For sure. Um, bugs are very important and we need more people to care about them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. And then when your background in like poultry studies and just like you sounds like you had a ranching experience, did you ever have any like intentions to do more of like the agriculture work? You know, um, when I told my dad I wanted to go to school for entomology, he told me that most people were focused on killing bugs, <laughs> not <laughs> saving bugs or educating people about bugs. Um, but I actually worked in a chemical ecology lab at Auburn for most of the time that I was there for some agricultural scientists. What we did was I reared caterpillars. Um, so they were like beet army worms that I reared. And we had specialist and generalist parasitoid wasps. So everybody thinks wasps are really big. These were like itty, itty, bitty, teeny, tiny little parasitic wasps. Mm-hmm. And so I, I reared both of these critters and basically the wasp would sting the caterpillar, lay its egg inside of the caterpillar, and then the wasp larva would hatch out and eat the caterpillar from inside out. And then a mer- cocoon emerge out as an adult and we'd start the process all over again. But the whole idea there was to find an alternative to using a pesticide. Oh, okay. So, yeah. um, I worked for a, a scientist. She was actually from Kenya and has put to use quite a bit of, of her research back home at some schools and different places that she's worked there. And um, he is a professor now at the University of Illinois. But yeah, it was definitely more agricultural focused. Um, Auburn University is land grant college. It's an ag school. So I had definitely like that. That was in my brain for a mm-hmm. while that maybe I would go the agricultural route. But it just, um, as I spent summers out West, as I got more enamored with the West, it just became um, not so important that I go work for a Monsanto or somebody like right, that. Right, So how do you use your like entomology background with Child Unlimited? So they've been awesome, again, as far as like the volunteer connection. Um, I've gotten to do several events and this is kind of how I got involved with TU anyway is because People in town um, found out that I was an entomologist working at the fly shops and then asked me to get involved with our local TU chapter. But we do projects and programs like Adopt-A-Trout and Trout in the Classroom, where you do field days with kids and go out and collect bugs, talk about them, talk about all the big groups of insects and their life history and metamorphosis and, you know, how they shed their exoskeletons. So I do a lot of educational type stuff um, along those lines. And then I'm working to put together a lot of teaching materials. So that way that if chapters kind of want to run their own events or maybe they've got, you know, somebody local who knows 
enough about it to kind of deliver the information, but they might need some more hands-on um, materials. I'm trying to put together some kind of event in a box type stuff where we can do more more bug focused things, but it's all it's all trophic, right? So it's all cascading up from the insects. Fish eat the bugs, and mm-hmm. we're not going to have fish without bugs, <laughs> so, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's what really gets people engaged. And again, it's super fun to me. If you have a crappy day fishing and you're not seeing a whole lot of action, just the fact that you can go out and flip over some rocks. One of my favorite things to do is take my waiting net and just go whack a willow bush or some tree next to me and see what flies out because it usually will kind of tell you what's going on. Uh, I, I read somewhere a couple of years ago that, um, that fly fishing is the most present sport that you can do because you've got to be so focused on, you know, the fish, the cast, the fly selection in the moment. There's just so many things that have to go right. But I feel like the bug portion can or cannot be the most important of that. But I just love that that is such a big part of it to me right definitely yeah that's interesting for you to say because i totally agree with that that you have to be so present when you're fly fishing because you really have to be conscious of how you're presenting the fly and kind of where you're casting and where the fish are which is something i'm still working on yeah i mean i grew up playing like contact sports and soccer and like going hard in the paint kind of stuff and so um you know when i kind of really shifted to fly fishing more in my young adult life it's, it's definitely made me a whole lot more patient and you know, it just makes you take a step back. You're not hitting somebody or kicking something. It's not about force. It's about, you know, patience and mm-hmm. understanding in the moment. And so I think it's, that's why I think it's such a great, you know, therapeutic thing too, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah. So um, you work with youth and then do you work with like adult volunteers as well? So yeah, I work with probably more adult volunteers than youth, um, but there are tons of youth events tied in with chapters. Okay. Um, right, right now, my focus is has been on our regional meetings. So we, obviously, the last couple of years have been weird with the pandemic and everything, and mm-hmm. so we haven't had tons of opportunities to get together in person. And so this year, this spring, we've got three regional meetings that are happening. One is going to be in Asheville, North Carolina, in March, and then we are having one in Taos, New Mexico, in May, and then in Stanford, Connecticut in June. And so those are kind of our regional breakout meetings. Um, We're going to hit the Midwest next year and some other spots, but then our annual meeting, which is all of TU is happening in Spokane, Washington in September. So again, just really been working towards these bigger events and seminars and trainings for volunteers at these regional meetings and get the network in person and chapters learn from one another, you know, what events have been successful, what events have not been successful it's been a it's been a tough couple of years, especially for a lot of chapters that just kind of if if you were strong, it seemed like um, you were able to pivot to the online format and still hold chapter meetings and mm-hmm. membership events through Zoom or whatever platform you were using. But a lot of people just crave human interaction, and you know they want to go do casting clinics and go catch bugs and do trash pickups and you know get together. So. I think a lot of folks are really looking forward to the networking opportunities. So that's been my big focus um, for this spring. Okay. Yeah, that sounds awesome. It sounds like you could do a lot of travel with your job too. I do. Um, Again, it's funny to get hired like at the tail end of a pandemic and (laughs) um, there's not been a lot of travel going on, but it's been really fun this fall. I got to travel to several state council meetings and kind of see how those are run. Um, from state to state because every state's different and every state has different priorities. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting for me being in the West where, you know, 
things like brook trout are a little bit more taboo. And then you go to the Northeast and they're all it like brook trout's what it's all about. Right. So, yeah. Um, just understanding the dynamics of, you know, the trout fisheries across the country and native, the non-native and wild. And um, it's, it's complicated, but um, everybody has their, their niche. And that's why we want to focus on these regionals because a blanket, you know, meeting doesn't necessarily cover everything for everyone. But I know that this fall um, in Spokane, it's going to be really awesome um, talking about a lot of the wins as far as recent dam removals and then hopes for the future dam removals on the Snake River. So do you kind of you kind of keep in touch with all the projects that are going on throughout to you or you kind of focus within your region? Um, no, I'm, I'm across the country. So I'm 400 plus chapters, um, give or take, because we're always chartering new ones and dechartering old ones. Mm-hmm. And, but yeah, if you're in Maine and you've got a question about how to set up an event, um, I'm probably going to be your point person just the same if you were somebody from New Mexico. Yeah, that's crazy. That's cool, though. But it's awesome to just, again, being lucky to live where I live, that I can drive to a lot of these, you know, state meetings and that I'm kind of centrally located. A lot of the big issues that are going on in the West are kind of right out my back door. So I I do feel a little disconnected though sometimes from, you know, the New England issues and things on the East Coast that are clear across the country. But um, I really appreciate, you know, the way TU is set up. We've got science and conservation staff and we get, you know, biweekly updates on what's going on in Arlington with policy and, um, you know, you get updates from science staff through webinars and things. So it's a really robust organization with a lot of, a lot of hands and a lot of pots, but, um, I really appreciate, you know, the connection of all of it. And so that's where I also feel like my role comes in too, right. Is, is connecting these grassroots volunteers Mm -hmm. with understanding what's going on in the bigger organization as far as science and, you know, what can we do to support that? Right, definitely. So what are some of the main issues in the West that you're dealing with? So in my area, it's conservation of native trout is a huge one. Mm -hmm. You know, protecting the Yellowstone cutthroat is something that's very near and dear to my heart. But it's also, again, a very uh, complicated issue. That's one of the things that I've had to learn living out here is um, the continental divide is very important with understanding where fish came from. And there's a lot of fishless you know, rivers in our area where rainbows and brown trout were introduced. And so, again, there's been a huge learning curve if you're not from this area to understand, like, why is the Henry's Fork a trophy rainbow fishery? And then, you know, in the South Fork, we're trying to conserve Yellowstone cutthroat, but we're trying to kill all the rainbows. So, you know, there's a lot of complicated issues surrounding um, native and wild trout. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I I would say the the crux of everything right now has been the lower snake dams. So that has been kind of the key focus. Two years ago, we weren't having these conversations in as uh, realistic of a light, I don't think. Um, You know, dam removals sounded like pretty lofty. And now that the Klamaths happened um, this year or this past year, that was huge news. And so I think like the conversations around dam removals and finding alternative energy sources and finding alternative ways to, you know, get barge shipments to from point A to point B, um, they're actually happening. Um, because I live in Idaho, Mike Simpson, our congressman, has really spearheaded the whole um, Snake River Dam removal campaign. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that was that was really huge coming from a person 
in his position to have pivoted, you know, after he's been a congressman for as long as I can remember. <laughs> he's one that's been in forever. For him to kind of come out and say that that he supports that, I think is is really a, been a game changer as far as opening up the conversations again to hopefully make that happen. And I feel like, you know, maybe it's realistic in the next 10 years, whereas two, three years ago, we didn't even think we'd be talking about it in this light right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. But I mean, <laughs> dams and native fish aside, like water is the biggest concern. Sure. Um, because if we don't have water, we don't have any of this, right? Um mm-hmm. And everybody's been watching, like, Mead shrink down. Everybody knows what's going on in the Colorado River Basin. And it's just, it's dire straits in a lot of scenarios. And um, the last two years in my backyard, our two reservoirs have been severely depleted. We've been very, very lucky this year that we're having an above-average snowpack year. But I think that's where people need to understand better the difference between the climate and the weather. You know, weather mm-hmm. events yeah, right. um, can be all kinds of wacky and maybe not make sense. But in the long term, we're still not where we need to be. Both of my local reservoirs are significantly lower than they ever have been since I've been here. And, you know, even with a big snow year, I don't expect them to fill up again because all the water rights are owned downstream by farmers and agricultural entities that use it for irrigation. And so it's just, again, a very complicated issue because we need food, right? But we also want to conserve this water and make sure that our our fishery is healthy. And so it just, it has to be the right collaboration and it has to be groups coming together and doing what's best for the greater good. Because my biggest fear is watching these reservoirs just totally drain down and become empty. And then, then what do we do? You know, it's not like you can go put it back. Right. Yeah. Hmm, Interesting. One funny thing that I did just think about too, um, just in regards to five rivers is when I was at Auburn my freshman year, I went through with a class and my poultry major and there was only like a dozen or so of us. There weren't that many, mostly boys and most of them fished. And Mm -hmm. we discovered that there was big bass on the ponds at the poultry farm and so these boys would all go hop the fence at night and sneak in there and catch big bass. <laughs> and so ended up, they formed our very first fishing club at Auburn University, which is now like a bass tournament club. <laughs> but you know, we didn't have a Five Rivers club at that point in time. But um, it was really cool to be there during the inception of one of our original fishing clubs. And um, I've actually been talking some to the Five Rivers club in Auburn because my cousin runs a summer camp right outside of there. And he has bought into our summer on the fly program, which is where we set summer camps up with deals where they can get bunches of rods and teach their campers how to fly fish. Because that's kind of like a miss, I feel like, in a lot of summer camp outfits is like you learn how to canoe and do ropes course and Mm -hmm. hike and ride horses and things like that. But fishing isn't always fly fishing focused. And so that's been one awesome way to connect some of the Five Rivers college folks. So hoping to set up Auburn Five Rivers and summer camps nearby to do some fishing training soon, which I think will be awesome. Yeah, definitely. That sounds like an awesome program. Yeah, again, it just like fly fishing isn't at the top of everybody's list in Alabama, but um, there's great opportunities there. North Alabama has some beautiful streams and there's a native red-eye bass there as well. Hmm, interesting. And now that you've been out west for a while, do you think you'll stay in the area or do you like other areas too since you've done a lot of traveling? Oh, I'm I'm pretty stuck where I am. My uh, sister and her husband are both park rangers in Grand Teton National Park. 
And my mom has since moved out here. And then my younger sister lives in Denver. Okay. So yeah, you're all, all out my there. family's like fairly close by. And I feel like we'll we'll stick around here as, as long as they'll have us. Sure. Yeah. Where's your favorite place to fish out there? Still going to probably say Yellowstone just because of the diversity of fishing it allows. Um, I've fished everything from lakes to spring creeks to big, fast-flowing rivers, and it's always such a different experience, and you get to target different species. Again, I like targeting Yellowstone cutthroat more often than not, but it's amazing to see you know, when you catch them in a lake versus when you catch them in the river and the difference in their coloration and their behavior based on what they're feeding on. Mm-hmm. Um one of the coolest things I think I've ever done is um, one of my favorite spots opens in the middle of July. And so nobody can fish it until then. And, you know, I went the day before it opened several years ago and hiked in a couple miles and I just sat, you know, no rod mm-hmm. <laughs> sat by the river and watched all the fish and their behavior and watched how they were eating and watched where they were and how they rested after they were eating. And so that was definitely one of like the most educational experiences for me as far as being an angler. And I think I want to spend more time doing stuff like that and just being more observant and not just having to force it and try to catch the fish right off gate, you know, right, <laughs> right, yeah. a- a- aggro about it. Um, but yeah, it's Yellowstone is such a special place to me. I usually do, um, a backpacking trip there every summer I try to put in for um, a trip in some portion of the park where you can kind of hike in and fish. Oh, that, that, um, that's my first awesome. couple of years out west I spent a lot of time just hiking and then I figured out like why why am I hiking just to hike when <laughs> so I could hike somewhere with has a lake or a river with fish in it. Sure, um, yeah. But there's just some incredibly special spots and you know, Yellowstone's so crowded in the summertime and it gets tons of visitors, but it's also a three million acre park. And if right. if you do a little bit of research and you get off the main road and you get on a trail, you're liable to have the place to yourself. And it's just such a special feeling. Mm-hmm. Do you do any winter sports out there too? I ski. Um, I actually really gotten into cross country skiing the last couple of years just because that's something I can take my dogs to do. And mm-hmm. um, I live really near a forest service trailhead. And so it's kind of nice to just be able to like pop out and not have to, you know, put on the big boots and drive up to the ski resort and pay the money sort of thing. Sure. But, yeah. Um, yeah. The winter, winter doesn't bother me too much. One of the, the coolest winter bug things that's happened is again, like during the pandemic, we were all locked up, you know, cooped up at home. And so I've never really observed as much as I did, you know, day to day during like spring melt off Mm -hmm. um, because I was home every day in March and April and May when the snow is starting to melt. And got a creek that's a tributary to the Teton River that's probably like 150 yards from my house. And all of a sudden I started seeing wingless stoneflies in my yard. And so there's a couple of species of stoneflies or that have what's called a shortened or brachypterous wing. Brachypterous just means it's got like half a wing. Okay. And so they're, the males of these species have half the wing, so they can't fly. And I'm like, how in the world are these ending up in my yard? Because like 150 yards is a pretty long way for a little stonefly to walk right, yeah. <laughs> if it can't fly. And, and what I learned after some research was that um, some of these stoneflies make little channels in the snow. And so they'll like almost create like an ice luge. And so they're like just traveling through these like little snow melt funnels underneath the main surface of the snow. And that's how they were getting to my yard. Hmm. <laughs> I was like, 
but that's all a you know genetic evolution strategy, right? Because they don't want to just mate with all their cousins, so it helps them get to a creek nearby and find other broods of their same species, so they can mate and continue to diversify their gene pool, which is just incredible. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you have a favorite so insect? So many lo- <laughs> I get asked this one a lot, and <laughs> I feel like I've probably changed my answer because it's really hard for me to say. Sure. <laughs> I really like brown drakes and gray drakes, which are both types of mayflies. Um, they have okay. two very similar but very different life histories. The, um, the gray drakes are swimmer nymphs, and brown drakes are burrower nymphs. And so brown drake nymphs are really hard to collect because they're burrowed into sand or mud, basically, mm-hmm. until they're ready to emerge. But I've got a couple places now where I know that they emerge, and that, that's also one of my favorite things to do as an entomologist, but that anybody could do is use iNaturalist and use your phone and mm-hmm. take pictures, even if it's even if it's a bad picture, <laughs> like at least you know there was a gray drake on this river on this day. And so I've gotten fairly good at kind of figuring out when things are going to emerge in different rivers and different places that I like to fish. And so whether it's to go fishing or to go catch bugs, I kind of know that time frame. And I really like going and catching brown drakes right before they emerge because they're really funny looking. Um, <laughs> they've got like big, uh, a big snout, almost like a mole, so that they can burrow down into the to the mud or silt. Hmm. And then the gray drakes on the flip side are uh, swimmer nymphs. So they've got these big paddle-like gills and they swim around almost like a little minnow. And so you can kind of see them, especially when they're coming to the surface about to emerge. But because they're both mayflies, they are not super heavily, like, robust-bodied insects, so they can emerge in the surface tension of the water. And so just being on the water and during an emergence and, and watching these things come up to the surface of the water and just shed their last exoskeleton and kind of float there on it until they've got enough bug blood in their veins to fly away, it's it's a really, really neat experience. And again, like, I've, I've done this several times where I've not even fished, and I've just sat there and watched the bugs emerge <laughs> because it was such... Um, I was just so enamored by it, not having seen it before. But again, now that I've kind of got a few of those timelines dialed, um, I'm hoping that I can continue, you know, to become a better angler for knowing that types, those types of things. And one of my favorite things to do is try and go on those days and try and fish a pattern that looks like one of those mayflies emerging because I know that they're going to emerge within the next couple of days. So um, it's just fun when you can really apply the science to the fishing portion of it, although you know, if you need to tie on just a big pink foam bug and that's what the fish want, <laughs> that's what they want. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Interesting. Oh. And then you're also a co-founder of Artemis. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so Artemis is the women's initiative of the National Wildlife Federation, the Sports Women's Initiative. And we formed in 2017 um, after just seeing a need out there for more kind of entry level and the next level type stuff for women getting into outdoor pursuits that revolved around hunting and fishing. And so, you know, there's always the sons learn from their dads kind of mantra, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I learned a lot about fishing from my dad, but there's not really a a comfortable safe space if you don't have a, a mentor in your life to teach you those things. And so Artemis was kind of born out of that, that need. And we had several different co-founders from several different walks of life, whether it be big game hunting or fishing or, um, 
you know, from the wildlife biology side of things. But we kind of came together and made a plan. And it's just been nuts, actually, how, how big it's taken off. I mean, it kind of started with some really basic, like, 101 how to hunt, how to use your gun, how to, you know, put together a fly ride. But half the time, I don't even know what all Artemis is doing until I check social media because we're doing so many events in so many places. And Mm -hmm. again, it was kind of born in the West. And so we kind of wanted to cultivate it here and see where it could expand. And we got so many people reaching out immediately from the East Coast and from the, you know, Midwest and Northeast. And we were just like, we can't just harness this here. We've got to take this and run. And so we've got ambassadors in over 30 states. We're doing events, everything from like how to pack your mule for a, you know, multi-day hunting trip to turkey camps and deer camps and, you know, places like Minnesota or Georgia or, um, you know, dove hunting, there's just been tons and tons of opportunities for women who, again, just don't have that first step, right? They don't Mm -hmm. have that way to get into it because it's really hard to just go buy a gun and figure out hunting. Like this isn't really like a thing you can YouTube. Right. (laughs) It's something that takes practice and understanding and, and really mentorship more than anything. And so we've really you know, cultivated these cohorts of ambassadors over the last couple of years and they've done incredible things and put on awesome events all over the country. And during COVID, we did tons of webinars and how-to seminar trainings online and they were wildly successful. So again, it was born out of a need and the need was definitely there and it just continued to snowball. And when we originally formed the group, you know, the whole idea was that we'd love for this to become obsolete one day. Like we'd love to not have to have an Artemis because we you know, everybody can just do it all together. But Mm -hmm. again, it's reminded me quite a bit of like the success of United Women on the Fly as a Facebook group. And they've just created a space that so many women crave and that so many women feel safe in and they can ask these questions in and don't feel stupid. And, uh, you know, oh, I've had that problem before. And you get these positive answers. And it's just been a really, really great experience. And I'm really proud to be a co-founder. And I, um, I continue to serve on their like advisory board and help, you know, pick ambassadors and things like that. But we just hired a new program director. So um, I'm just super excited to see where it goes. Yeah, it sounds like an awesome program. What's the meaning behind the name Artemis? So Artemis was, uh, is a Greek goddess, the Greek goddess of hoarding, so of hunting and fishing. Okay. Um, I believe she's also the goddess of fertility or something too <laughs> but she was the goddess of the hunt um oh it's childbirth i think was so, okay. you know it was just very all-encompassing for like very a, a womanly name mm-hmm. um and then i guess we've like named all these like there's tons of things named artemis um i guess like nasa has some artemis stuff but but yeah so it's artemis sportswomen if you want to look us up but you can find out what's going on through artemis facebook pages and the website but there's lots of good info on there if you want to check it out yeah definitely how did you meet the other co-founders Totally random. Um, There's a boarding arm of the National Wildlife Federation. And so if you're not familiar with National Wildlife Federation, that's like Ranger Rick. Mm -hmm. So they're very like different than TU in that they're like an all animal type of organization. And um, they had a a sportsman's division of it. And and again, just born out of a need, kept hearing like, hey, are y'all ever going to do any women's events or women's activities? And it's like, well, the guy in charge of it, he's like, I don't really feel authentic, like putting on a bunch of women's clinics and things like that. And Mm -hmm. so he started kind of making some phone calls and feeling out some women that he'd heard about across the West. And actually, I was kind of right place, right time. Um, At that point, 
in my career, I was working for High Country Outfitters, which used to be Jack Dennis Sports, but it's kind of a, a storied outdoor store on the town square in Jackson Hole. Mm-hmm. And we hosted a backcountry hunters and anglers pint night. And one of the girls who had been tapped already by the National Wildlife Federation was there. And I just got to talking and she was like, man, like I'm a big game hunter. You know, we need some anglers because we're trying to start this group. And would you be interested? And it just, you know, kind of came about from there. But, you know, you never know what kind of conversations you're going to have at these networking events that lead you to new places. So Mm -hmm. that's, again, craving that human interaction, right? I don't think I ever would have had that conversation over a zoom call or anything. Right. But, yeah. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. It was, uh, it was a very organic, awesome experience. And again, it's just been amazing to see how it's taken off. And then you mentioned we can learn more about Artemis on like Facebook and Instagram and their website. Yep. And it's artemis.nwf.org. And there's tons of blogs and, you know, gear, there's information about ambassadors and how to contact us. So tons of great info on there. Artemis also does a podcast that you should check out after you listen to Emerson. Yeah, that's awesome. And then how can people learn more and become more involved in Tron Limited activities? So um, if you don't know who your local chapter is, I would suggest getting on cu.org and checking our map and seeing if you could find a local chapter. If you're interested in getting involved at that level, um, we also have our website, cu.org backslash events, where you can see a comprehensive list of all the different events that are happening with chapters across the country as well as with national. But you can always email myself or any of the other folks on the volunteer operations team if you've got any ideas or, again, if you want to get connected more directly with some folks at TU. My email is maggie, M-A-G-G-I-E, dot human, H-E-U-M-A-N-N at tu.org. So feel free to reach out if that's something that you're interested in. Well, yeah, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been awesome learning about your work with TU, entomology, Artemis, and just all the awesome topics we've covered. Yeah, I really appreciate it, Linnea. This has been great. This was a fun conversation to learn more about entomology, volunteer operations in Trot Unlimited, and Artemis. Check out the links in the description to connect with TU, United Women on the Fly, or Artemis. This season is hosted and edited by me, Lenaya Turner. The music is made by the Wright Brothers. If you have any questions, feel free to send them to fiverivers at tu.org. Thanks for listening to another episode of Emerging.